presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Focus on Children's Health is supported by Genzyme Corporation, researching the most challenging areas of medical need. Learn more about one of the world's leading biotechnology companies at Genzyme.com. Your host is Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures. Our guest is Dr. Seth Corey, Sharon Murphy, Stephen Rosen Professor of Cancer Biology and Chemotherapy, Director of Oncology Research at Children's Memorial Hospital and the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Department of Pediatrics and Cell and Molecular Biology, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Corey and I are discussing his research, repurposing safe pharmaceuticals and botanical medicines for relapsed pediatric cancer. Dr. Corey, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much, Bruce. So why is it important to find new treatments for pediatric cancers? Don't most pediatric cancer patients do well on standard chemotherapy and other regimens? There's been a tremendous amount of progress in the past four decades with survival rates, cure rates, in some cases approaching 90%. However, death due to cancer remains the most common cause of non-accidental death in children and young adolescents. So obviously we need to do better to reach 100% and to eliminate cancer as a cause of death in children. How many children in the U.S. are stricken with cancer and what are the most common cancers that they get? About 13,000 cases of new childhood and adolescent cancer are diagnosed each year in the United States, which translates to about 1 in 10,000. So that doesn't sound like a lot, but again, it remains the most common cause of non-accidental death. The most common pediatric cancers, some of it depends upon the age, whether you're an infant, a toddler, or a teenager. But overall, the most common pediatric cancers remain the leukemias, in particular acute lymphoblastic leukemia, followed by a composite of brain tumors, central nervous system tumors, and then lymphomas, neuroblastoma, a nervous-type tumor, soft-tissue sarcomas, and kidney cancers. What's the most common age that pediatric cancers occur in kids? There's typically a peak of diagnosis between the ages of 2 and 6. That's when we see the acute lymphoblastic leukemia, the Wilms tumor of the kidney, neuroblastoma of the sympathetic nervous chain, and then that seems to recede, and then there's a second peak of cancer diagnosed in the teenage years, and around the ages of 14 to 18, and the more common cancers in that age range is lymphomas and bone tumors. And in many ways, uh, this second peak of childhood cancer in the teenage years is sort of an underserved, understudied, and undertreated area that has gotten a lot of interest recently with the development of adolescent young adult programs in children's hospitals throughout the country. Do we think we understand the etiology, what causes these two peaks, and are they different? Those are fascinating biological clinical questions. I think the cancers that arise in the first six years of life clearly are related to defects in development. The second group of cancers that appear in adolescence may also have an element of development because, after all, kids develop at different 
paces and different times of their life. So in the adolescent years, that's the period when they're exposed to different sets of viruses that may help to trigger lymphoma or Hodgkin's disease, as well as there's a pubertal growth spurt that's associated with development of the musculoskeletal system. That may explain why we see more sarcomas and bone tumors in the older group. Why do you think the statistics are better in pediatric cancers than they are in adult cancers? Probably for a variety of reasons. One is the biology of the cancers. Unlike adults, which mostly have epithelial cancers, which may be attributed to environmental exposures and greater number of genetic hits, pediatric tumors tend to be not epithelial but mesenchymal in origin. They tend to be, as we just talked about, perhaps more linked to developmental disorders, developmental defects, problems that arise during tissue development. And so they have a different set of genetic lesions that may account for this. So the biology is clearly different. Another reason why children and adolescents do better is because they can tolerate higher doses of chemotherapy. Their hearts are healthier, their kidneys are healthier, their lungs are healthier, uh, their blood system is healthier. So they can withstand high doses of chemotherapy, doses that would make an adult feel very sick and have life-threatening complications. So I think there's a combination of biology and the ability to withstand chemotherapy that contributes to this, but the answer is probably more complex. If one took a look at childhood leukemia, you can have almost the same genetic lesions occur in adults as in children, but children still do better. And then a third reason could be that pediatricians have been quite disciplined in following regimens, treatment plans, without going off the plan. And so there is a greater adherence to research protocols, which probably is linked to a better outcome. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to our monthly specialty series, Focus on Children's Health, on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professional. Our guest is Dr. Seth Corey, Sharon Murphy, Stephen Rosen, Professor of Cancer Biology and Chemotherapy, the Director of Oncology Research at Children's Memorial Hospital, and the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Department of Pediatrics, and Cell and Molecular Biology, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Corey and I are discussing his research repurposing safe pharmaceuticals for relapsed pediatric cancers. And that takes us to my next question, which is, are companies focused on new drug discovery to help relapsed pediatric cancer patients? Unfortunately, their interest is in large markets. There's about 12,000 cases of childhood cancer diagnosed each year, as opposed to about 1.5 million cases of adult cancer. Granted that there is a great deal of heterogeneity in the adult cancer field as there is in pediatrics, but one can see that the numbers of people affected are so much greater. And as we also talked about, the outcome in adult cancer is not as great as pediatrics. So there is a societal appreciation that there's a need for improving adult cancer. So in a way, the successes in pediatrics cancer therapy has leveled off over the past 10, 15 years with our success and the shift of focus to trying to tackle the more common adult cancers. Those are major reasons why pediatric cancer therapy has unfortunately not kept up to its progress of the past 40 years. 
So you've been talking about repurposing drugs. Why does that make sense for this pediatric patient population, especially the relapsed patients? For several reasons. One is, as we just talked about, there are economic and as well as regulatory restrictions on trying new drugs in children. So if you have a new drug, first of all, it's been developed against an adult cancer. And secondly, the trials have to take place in adults before they can go on to children. And because they're developed against adults, the biology may be a little bit different. The targets may be a little bit different or substantially different. And so those drugs may not be the best drugs for pediatric cancers. We don't know the answers to that issue right now. So in order to improve outcome in children and to get around, if you will, the regulatory red tape and economic considerations of running a a clinical trial, which can be very expensive now, to rediscover old drugs offers a very attractive solution to the problem. That is, if there's a drug that's been taken, for instance, to treat malaria for 20, 30 years, that drug has been tested in millions of people and literally tens of thousands of children. So it has a known safety record. Secondly, a lot of those drugs are off patent, and so they're more economical than the newer designer smart drugs that are being studied now. So we can go back and rediscover compounds and find that they have a mechanism of action in childhood cancer. What work has been done or is being done right now that repurposes or rediscovers these drugs for pediatric cancers? Well, some of this was stimulated by an acute observation by a physician who had a child with recurrent neuroblastoma who also developed Chagas disease or sleeping sickness and was put on a medicine to combat trypanosomes. And that child not only got better from her sleeping sickness, but also the neuroblastoma seemed to recede for a while. These compounds that have been used can be used to treat cancers, and the mechanism of action may be related to some of the effects that they're used to treat successfully malaria or other parasitic diseases. There are several other examples of drugs that have been rediscovered. One example is thalidomide, which was taken off the market because of limb anomalies in children born to mothers who took thalidomide as a sedative. Another case, there is arsenic, which was used as a poison, but now is used very effectively in a variety of leukemias. And another drug, retinoic acid, vitamin A, which has been used to treat acne, has also been used in some types of cancers such as leukemia and neuroblastoma. So fortunately, we have compounds available and we may not fully appreciate their full mechanism of action. And what's your plan to screen and test these kinds of drugs? Which ones are you focusing on and how might you go about this research? We'd like to focus on the antimalarials because they produce something called reactive oxygen species, which we know promotes cell death or apoptosis. Another group of drugs that we'd like to screen are the antiviral agents, in part because they target a DNA synthesis, which has been a successful target in many of our cancer chemotherapeutic agents. 
So what we like to do is to go back to the antimalarials and antiviral agents and screen a variety of pediatric cancer cell lines for activity and then move forward to a more rapid introduction into the clinic where we can formally test the efficacy of these drugs. Our guest has been Dr. Seth Corey. Dr. Corey and I have been discussing research repurposing safe pharmaceuticals and botanical medicines for relapse and pediatric cancer. Dr. Corey, thank you for being with us on ReachMD. Thank you, Bruce, for giving me the opportunity. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Focus on Children's Health is supported by Genzyme Corporation, researching the most challenging areas of medical need. Learn more about one of the world's leading biotechnology companies at Genzyme.com. Genzyme Corporation is proud to support this important programming for ReachMD listeners. Genzyme Corporation does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by ReachMD. To download this program or any program in the Focus on Children's Health series, please visit us at ReachMD.com. How can mucopolysaccharidosis 1 or MPS 1 present? Listen as Dr. Chet Whitley, Director, Advanced Therapies, Department of Pediatrics and Institute of Human Genetics, University of Minnesota, describes a case of MPS-1. Allison was referred to the University of Minnesota Genetics Clinic when there were concerns raised about her skeletal changes, her physical appearance that suggested mucopolysaccharidosis. Allison had subtle facial changes which have been historically called coarsening or puffiness of the facial features. There was some significant curvature of the back or kyphosis or gibbous deformity of the back. There was also very, very subtle corneal clouding, a level of corneal clouding that would probably escape a routine diagnosis but could be identifiable with a slit lamp microscope by a, a trained ophthalmologist. This led to further evaluations for carpal tunnel syndrome which is typically asymptomatic in a child but are detectable by an EMG. To determine if Allison had a mucopolysaccharidosis, we ordinarily want to take a urine test to measure glycosaminoglycans, or GAGs, in the urine. When the GAGs are found to be elevated, that essentially is confirmation of an MPS or mucopolysaccharidosis condition. Hers were elevated, and that indicated that we should be doing additional confirmatory testing and testing that would determine which of the different MPS types she actually was affected by. When we found the urine GAGs were elevated, we went on with enzyme testing from a blood sample. We determined that she was deficient of the enzyme alpha-L-Igeronidase. That defined her condition as mucopolysaccharidosis type 1. You've been listening to the case of Allison, who was diagnosed with MPS-1 by Dr. Chet Whitley, Advanced Therapies Department of Pediatrics and Institute of Human Genetics, University of Minnesota. To learn more about Allison's case and MPS-1 in general, please visit www.mps1diagnosis.com.